when I was maybe seven or eight years old, somehow I got locked out of the house and I was the only one there. I don't really remember how it happened, but I was on the back porch trying to get in our back door. I had no key, so I start scheming. I start looking around and I find one of those little flimsy plastic knives. You know, the little white plastic knives you get like at Captain D's and the little plastic wear. I find a little plastic knife, and at that point in my life, I, it was totally rational to me that I would stick that knife in the keyhole and get into the house. So I did. I stuck it in, I turned it, and it broke off. And it broke off in such a way that there was white plastic lodged inside the keyhole. So I panic, and I throw the, you know, the evidence away, the remaining evidence. I get rid of the knife. Within maybe 15 or 20 minutes, my parents are home. And they, of course, they realize what's happened. They figure it out because they can't get in. And uh, my dad, very gently, pulls me aside and says, Kyle, did you put something in the keyhole that, that then broke off? And y'all, I had a performance ready. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't just deny involvement, okay? I started crying. And I said, you guys always blame me for everything. <laughs> and my dad's like, I'm not blaming you. I'm just asking you. Uh, eventually we came to the conclusion that some very skilled criminal had tried to break into our house with plastic ware, okay, as they're known to do. Um, I, now, I share that story to make a confession, that even from a very, very early age, no one ever had to teach me how to do this, but from a very early age, I was willing to do whatever it took to work things to my own advantage. If that meant lying to save my skin, then I was willing to do it. If it meant lying so that I could make myself look good and prop myself up, I was willing to do that too. If it meant uh, blaming someone else for something that I had done, if it meant making a promise that I had no intention of keeping, that for me was all on the table. And don't act like you've never done those things. All right, we're in church. We can be honest about it. The truth is, sadly the truth is, those things are still on the menu for me. They're still on the menu for us. I, I hope that those things, I don't entertain those ideas the same way I used to when I was a kid. But I still have that potential to try to, to try to work things to my advantage. And uh, Jesus has an interesting word for us today. We just read it from Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, from his own mouth, Jesus speaks of what it means to be a Christian. And this is not something that I typically think of, but it's an important truth for us today. That to be a Christian is to refuse to seek your own advantage. To be a Christian is to refuse to live in such a way that I'm entitled to a certain level of treatment or that, I'm, that I should manipulate my circumstances so that they work for me. It's called self-advancement, and Jesus squashes that. That's why, in, in the case of my little story from, from 30 years ago, lying is wrong. Yes, of course, we all know lying was wrong. I knew lying was wrong when I told that particular lie, but it's not just that lying is wrong because it's wrong. It's wrong because it's utterly selfish and self-seeking. I didn't want to get in trouble, and so I told a lie to save myself, right? And so in that case, I was, I, I was seeking self-advancement. I couldn't have articulated that as a seven-year-old, but that's what I was doing. It helped me in the moment, but it harmed my relationship with my parents. It was a lie. It, it cost me trustworthiness. They believed me in terms of not punishing me, but they knew better. They knew I did it. And now that I'm a dad, I know the difference, right? But it was, it was selfish. It was self-seeking. And, and Jesus is showing us today in the Sermon on the Mount that that's not how a Christian operates. 
We don't live in such a way that we're trying to always turn things to our own advantage. There's a fascinating chapter in the Bible. We hear it a lot of times at weddings. It's 1 Corinthians 13. It's the love chapter where the Apostle Paul characterizes love. And one of the interesting things he says about love, he says, love does not seek its own. Love does not seek its own. Love is not interested in self-advancement or manipulation for our own benefit. Love is only interested in the good of others. And we're going to see that. Jesus is going to give us two very different commands today. But we're going to see, I hope, that they're, they're kind of like two streams that flow into the same river. They both have to do with this bigger idea that we don't try to manipulate people or circumstances in such a way that they always end up with me on top. And so Jesus is going to talk first about our speech, and he's going to talk secondly about how we respond when we're done wrong. Okay? Two important things, two, I think, very practical things for us to see today. So look with me again at Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 33. The first portion of this, this text today, Jesus, speaking to his disciples, he says again, You have heard that the ancients were told, this is what we've all heard and what we all believe, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Don't lie, in other words. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your own head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be, yes, yes, or no, no, and anything beyond these is of evil. Okay, so in the time of Jesus, you think about this. They didn't have any benefit of recording devices, of video. They didn't sign a lot of binding contracts in the way that we do now. So how do you know if a person really did what they said or that they were really going to follow through on what they said they would do? You didn't have a lot of evidence to collect to either confirm or deny You just had to go on their word, right? And so a person's trustworthiness in Jesus's day was a very high value. It still is, but even much more so in their culture. A person's word was their reputation. And so people would make oaths. They would take vows. They would swear in an effort to try to uh, kind of navigate through socially, uh, in terms of contracts, sales, anything like that, All you had was your word, and so you would make oaths. And people would literally swear to heaven, Jesus says, or they would swear to earth or swear toward Jerusalem or swear on their own life, right? Swear on their own head. And Jesus is making a point here when he says this. I think we can probably agree with this. The more you swear, the more you promise, the more you put yourself out there and give your word, the more potential there is to break it. Isn't that the truth? You start making promises, you start saying you'll do things, and eventually you lose track, right? And it may not even be malicious on my part, but eventually I lose track, and I forget that I made that appointment. I forget that I said I would do that. I forget that I said I'd pray for somebody, and I never actually follow through, right? And it may be as simple as that, but the more promises, the more vows we take, the more the potential there is for breaking. And, uh, and I think it's interesting. You, 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 may have, you may still be around people who do this, uh, certainly, it was, it was very popular when we were kids to say, I swear, I promise, I'm not making that up, I swear to God. Right? If you're really serious. Isn't it interesting, though, I don't know if you're this way, if somebody ever says to me, I swear to God, 
I just assume they're lying. Don't you? <laughs> I mean, really, think about it, right? Because if they have to go to that extreme to try to convince me of their trustworthiness, they're probably not trustworthy to begin with. And so Jesus squashes this, and we notice how he does it. He goes beyond simply saying, don't lie. We all know that lying's wrong, right? Don't bear false witness. Don't make false vows, but fulfill your vows to the Lord. Jesus is not denying that, that, tr- that truthfulness is important. But you see how he says it? He says, don't swear by heaven, by the earth, by Jerusalem, or even by your own head. Why not? Why not? Because God owns it all. You notice how Jesus positions God as completely sovereign and completely in control. God controls heaven, but God controls even down to the very hairs on your head. You can't make one hair white or black. You're not in control. How do you know if you're going to keep all your promises? You can't manipulate your circumstances. Only God ultimately has control. We don't. And so people typically now, this is true for me and probably for you, people who typically make a lot of vows, a lot of promises, take a lot of oaths, are doing it not because they are sincere in their hearts, but they're doing it to try to gain control over others. They're doing it to try to manipulate circumstances. They're doing it to try to gain leverage in relationships. And the, the more I boast with my mouth, the more I talk myself up, the more I paint myself in a positive light, the more that I promise to do something, the more maybe, the better you'll think of me or the more you'll trust me implicitly, but I'm not really doing it for you. I'm doing it for me. People do that for their own benefit, not for the benefit of others. And so Jesus says, very simply, just speak what is true. Just be simply honest. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. If you are a truthful person, you never have to swear about anything. You never have to go around making promises or trying to cover the tracks for promises you've broken because you're simply truthful. It's just who you are. Be a truthful person and your relationships will be pure. As a result, people won't have reason to doubt you. Now we see, I hope, that this is different. This is deeper than if just Jesus had said, don't lie. Don't lie. Because what he's saying is, don't use your words to advance yourself. Don't use your words to try to paint yourself in a positive light or paint others in a negative light. Don't use your words to try to get one over on somebody or don't use your words to try to manipulate people to work in your favor. That's self-advancement. That's, that's what I was doing as a seven-year-old, trying to put my dad in a bad situation, crying, blaming him for blaming me, right? Because it put him on the defensive now, and I got the benefit of the doubt, right? And we can still do that. Simply be an honest and trustworthy person, Jesus says you'll never have to worry about it. Now, you and I may think, right where we sit, I'm doing just fine in this area. Some of these Sermon on the Mount passages, they're difficult. This one's not so bad. I'm trustworthy. I'm honest. But y'all, I would just, I'd encourage you in this to take inventory of your own heart. Only you can do this. But to sincerely ask, do the things I text, do the things I post, do the promises I make, um, am I the kind of person who, in a deep-rooted way, am I trustworthy and honest Or am I constantly using my words to try to position myself in a better light or in a better circumstance? We we may do this, and it's so natural to us we don't even know we're doing it because it's just who we are. It's, it's uh, It's how our nature functions, okay? And so Jesus says, listen, you be trustworthy. Yes, yes, no, no, and everything beyond these is of evil. He doesn't mince words for us. 
He doesn't say, okay, there's caveats, there's loopholes, you know. No, he says, if you're, if you're simply honest, if you're simply trustworthy, good, because everything beyond that comes from Satan. So we've got to take this to heart. Are my words designed to my own advantage, or are they for the good of others first and foremost? Big question. Now, that's actually the easier question that we're going to ask of ourselves today. What Jesus says after this is more difficult. I think you'll find it more difficult. He calls us in our speech to be plainly trustworthy, pure, and godly. But then Jesus speaks of an issue that, that it, it's troubling for me, at least in theory and certainly in practice. What Jesus is going to say is difficult because he's about to tell us that we should not seek our own advantage even when we have the right to, even when we're within our rights to do it. Okay? So look with me at verse 38. This is a famous verse, and it's famous for all the, the right reasons because it, people struggle with it. Okay? Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, and he quotes from the Old Testament, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. Whoever sues you, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. All right, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That is... Uh, that is a command and an ethic as old as dirt. Okay? It's been around, and it came from the very mind and mouth of God. It's been around for a long time. And you know what? It's actually pretty, pretty solid, pretty, pretty good. I mean, if you think about how uh, what's, is reciprocity, am I thinking of the right word? This is how things are meant to function. That if somebody takes $100 from you, they ought to, be able, they, they ought to give that money back. Right? That's just the way, it's, that's the way it ought to be. That's justice. If somebody uh, ruins your property, they ought to make it right. That ought to be the requirement of the law. If somebody commits murder, then they ought to pay with their own life, whether life in prison or, or capital punishment. Now, I'm not making a statement when I say that. I'm just saying that makes sense, doesn't it? And if we think about any, any culture, any society that does not function that way would fall apart, would fall into chaos. Wrongs have to be made right. The score has to be even. Things have to be done in such a way that if I commit a crime or a wrong, it's got to be made right. Okay? But then Jesus comes along right here, and he seems to undermine all that, doesn't he? Now, two things that, that we need to, I think, understand contextually here. First, Jesus is not talking about society. He's not, making a, he's not giving us a new ethic for government here. Remember, he's speaking to his disciples personally about personal relationships. So don't mistake what Jesus is saying as some sort of new governmental ethic. Okay? He's not denying justice in this. He's talking about our personal relationships. But then secondly, understand, Jesus is not giving us an absolute here that we're meant to take broadly across the board. A few weeks ago, Jesus addressed lust. We talked about it. And he made a shocking statement. He said, if your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter into heaven with a deformity than to enter into hell with your whole body intact, right? Now, he wasn't being literal. That's not meant to be taken absolutely. It's hyperbole. He's trying to make a point. And here again, Jesus is making a point that we really have to be careful not to misunderstand. There have been Christians in the past, and, and perhaps even now, who have read this text, you shall not resist an evil person. And they've come to this conclusion, you shall not resist an evil person, period. Which means, if somebody walks in the room with a gun, nobody should tackle them, 
Nobody should interfere. If somebody breaks into your house, don't call the police, just let it ride. If Hitler tries to take over the world, don't go to war. Just mind your own business and it'll, you know, hope, hope for the best. And people have come to this conclusion that, that Jesus was speaking so absolutely here that they have made the claim that, that to be a Christian, you cannot be a police officer, you cannot be a soldier, you cannot enter the military because then you would have to resist evil people. And Jesus said not to do that. Do we see how we could misinterpret this so easily here? That's not what he's talking about. So what is Jesus saying? He gives examples to help, to, to, to help flesh it out. We see he gives three examples. He says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn in the other also. If someone sues you and takes your shirt, give him your coat. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. That last one, uh, in, 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 under Roman rule, uh, the people of Israel, if, if a Roman soldier came up alongside a citizen and just handed the citizen his stuff, his luggage, his armor, and said, carry this for me, the citizen was obligated to do it. Okay? They were under Roman rule. To, to refuse to do it, you'd go to jail. And so they, somebody in that case, you could be forced into service to walk up to a mile in that case. And so that's what Jesus means. But what Jesus is saying is, is, is in each case, you are being done wrong. Someone personally is doing you wrong. They're, they're interfering with your life. They're taking away your rights. They're insulting you. They're trying to take something that's yours. In this case, if they sue you to take your shirt, the connotation here is that they're doing that wrongly. They don't have the right to do it. But in every situation, Jesus says, offer up the other cheek. Give your coat as well. Go two miles instead of one. Jesus is talking about something that is not passive weakness, He's not saying, man, if, if the world does you wrong, if somebody tries to run you over, you just lay down and take it. Jesus is talking about going beyond the wrongdoing. And the phrase that I would use, I'm just my phrase, I would say that Jesus is calling us not to passive weakness or passive submission. He's calling us to active grace. He's calling us to something that I call active grace where we do something that is not only it's an opposite our nature, of course, but it's opposite of what the perpetrator would expect. It's opposite of what the world would expect, that if we're done wrong, we respond in a way that totally um, disarms the people who witness it. For, uh, Peter talked about this in 1 Peter 3. He says, do not return evil for evil or insult for insult, but give a blessing instead. Isn't that totally counterintuitive? It's also countercultural. Because see, what happens, what happens when someone does you wrong, when someone, and this is truly the case in Jesus' examples, he's talking about injustice. You didn't have this coming. This is something that's been done to you now that you didn't deserve. If someone insults your dignity with a slap on the face or an insult, if someone takes something from you, if somebody pushes you around and forces you, to do something against your will, the obvious response, y'all, both broadly in our culture and within our own hearts, the obvious response is to get revenge, right? To even the score, take them to court, insult them right back, slap them back, demand your rights. That makes total sense. And yet Jesus gives us a new ethic, a different response. Jesus says, in a merciless world, you are to be a people of mercy. He speaks of these things as if they were commonplace. If this happens, assuming that it probably will, to some degree it's going to happen, both in his day and in our day, Jesus says in a merciless world where these things tend to happen, 
We are to be a different people altogether, a people of mercy, that in an entitled world where we all think we deserve a certain kind of treatment, Jesus says we are to be unselfish. In, an, in a revenge-oriented world where it's always important that we get back at whoever's hurt us, Jesus says you are to be a forgiving people. He's calling us to something entirely different. And again, the point is not Jesus saying justice doesn't matter. I hope, I hope you see that. God cares more about justice than anybody in this room. God is a just God. We'll talk about that more in a second. He cares about justice. This is not God saying that somehow justice doesn't matter, that our rights, that our dignity are, are insignificant to him. No, the point is that in taking on the character of Jesus, we show a dark world what light really is. That in taking on the character of Jesus, that Peter, who watched him from afar as he was crucified, Peter said about Jesus that while being reviled, he did not revile in return. That while suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to God, who judges righteously. That's what Jesus Christ did on the cross. That as people spit upon him, he never spit back. He did not give them what they deserved. In taking on the character of Jesus, we disarm the world because we show them a light that cannot otherwise be comprehended. You see what Jesus is calling us to do? Some of us will remember this. Some of you remember it because you lived it. Others of us, we've seen the newsreels. I know we're all familiar with it, the civil rights movement. And I'm going to speak very broadly here just to make my point, okay? But in the civil rights movement, which, was, which happened in part here in our state, African Americans generally were oppressed, beaten, um, attacked with, by dogs, um, knocked over by water from fire hoses, the law was working against them. They were mocked. They were called every name in the book. And what was the response? What, did, what form did the movement take on in light of those attacks? It was called the movement of nonviolence. It was a counterintuitive thing. That by and large, there, were no, there, there are very few, if any, stories of retaliation and revenge and fighting back because the movement was established on active grace, on nonviolence violence. And there was no secret for that. That was rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther King, chief among them, was a pastor who led that movement. Now, who prevailed in that movement? The force of arms, the people who had the law on their side and who had the dogs and who had the fire hoses? No. Those who prevailed were those who exhibited active grace because it was the grace of their response that exposed the evil for what it really was. And in that case, no matter how strong the evil appeared to be, it was no match for the light of God's grace shown through God's people. Okay? Now that's what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 12. I told you I'd come back around to the justice of God. Paul says in Romans 12 to us, to the church, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God will take care of evil. God will ultimately judge the world according to righteousness. He'll do it. But what do we do? Verse 20, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, become, do not be overcome by evil 
but overcome evil with good. When your enemy treats you wrongly, what does he expect in return? He expects evil in return. That's what he wants. Paul says what Jesus said, that you overcome evil with good, and in that way you heap burning coals on his head. That means that in the pure light of active grace, of response that echoes the very character of Jesus Christ, that we show evil for what it really is and we disarm it. And the heat, the pain, the evil comes back upon the perpetrator because we refuse to send it back his way. We return a blessing instead. That's so counterintuitive, but that's what the scripture calls us to. Now I say it again, we don't read absolutes into what Jesus is saying that we should just lie down and, and uh, somehow not care about injustice. What Jesus is saying is not that if someone else is being oppressed, if someone else is being done wrong and suffering, you should never step in and do anything about it. You better. We ought to be a people who fight for justice. The point is that Jesus, I think the point Jesus is making is this. When I'm done wrong, when I am personally done wrong, when I'm treated unfairly, when I'm treated unjustly, what is the default setting of my heart? What is my natural response? Is it to balance the scales? Is it to get back? And some of us are passive-aggressive, okay? So you would never get back outwardly, but you're going to hold on to it in your heart. You're never going to let it go. You're going to live and stew in bitterness for the rest of your life, okay? That's really just as bad. I do that too. Is that our default? Is that who we are? Because that's natural. Or are we the kind of people who, taking on the character of Jesus, actually can return a blessing instead? You know, I, I realize this doesn't make any sense. I realize how, how difficult this is to stomach. And there's, there's such a deep part of me in my heart that I don't want this. This is not how the world works. This is not how you get ahead. This is not how you get even. This is not how you end up, right, with things working in your favor. But Jesus, again, Jesus is saying that's not how the Christian lives anymore. That's not who we are. If I, if I sit here thinking that I'm entitled to a certain kind of treatment, I deserve better then I'm always going to be scheming as to how I can turn life to my own advantage. Always. Because my default setting is that I deserve what is best. Even if it means other people get hurt in the process, even if it means I have to lie to get it, even if it means that when I'm done wrong, I, I turn away from the example and the expression of Jesus and I show them what for instead. Right? I'm going to make sure it gets right and that I end up ahead. And that is not the character that Christ calls us into here. Jesus calls us into an, into an unnatural way of life, but that's what he came to do. I mean, we, we've been walking, if you've been with us at all in the Sermon on the Mount, every single time, every single week, he's telling us something that doesn't make sense to our rational minds, and it doesn't fit the narrative of our culture in terms of what it means to be happy and fulfilled and successful, and Jesus is counteracting all those things to give us something new that is from the heart of God, and so it's not meant to make sense to us. What makes sense to us is, put yourself first, and if you're lucky, you'll end up on top. What Jesus says, he says, put yourself last. And in that, you'll show the world what God's grace really is. The question for me, honestly, I just say this about me, I've got to be willing to actually believe him. Because there's so much of me even now, I've been a Christian 20 years, and yet there's so much of me now, I don't want to believe that. That's just not how it works. Am I willing to believe Christ? How do we come to believe him? I mean, how, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, man, this is wacky. How, how, I mean, how in the world could I ever step across this line 
to actually become this kind of person? Well, I got an answer for you. It's the same answer every week, by the way. It's the same answer you would answer if you were in Sunday school right now, right? The answer is Jesus. The answer, and let's be grateful for this, the answer is not, get after it. Figure it out. Stop being so selfish, right? Those are the things I tell myself. That stuff doesn't work, right? You don't, you don't get this, you don't become this kind of person Jesus is calling us to. You don't become this way by simply willing it so and trying to be better. It has to come from a deeper place than that. It's got to come from outside of us, in fact. And I want to show you that as we close here. I'm going to quote, a, this is a fairly long scripture, but it's so rich and wonderful. This is Philippians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul commands us in Philippians 2 to be a certain way, to have a certain kind of character that fits with our scripture today. But he doesn't stop with simply commanding it. He actually gives us an example, an example that's so lofty and wonderful that we really can't even touch it, but it underscores something that's been done for us. Look at this from Philippians 2, verse 3. Paul says to us, to the church, he says, do nothing, nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Right? Do not seek your own advantage. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have in yourselves the same attitude, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and, be, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." What is Paul saying? Listen, Jesus, who is God, Jesus is not a subservient creation of God. He's not like us. He's not even like the angels. Jesus is God. And as God, Jesus had every right to seek his own advantage. He was already the utmost glorious being in the universe. He had every right to simply maintain his position in glory. And that's what Paul is trying to tell us, that he did not maintain his glory, but instead he emptied himself out. He did not take advantage of his div divine position, but he poured himself out and made himself human. He became just like us. And in becoming human, he didn't just become like you and me. He actually took on the lowest form of humanity, a bondservant. He became our servant. God himself coming to earth to serve sinful people. You talk about counterintuitive. And Jesus, having come to the earth as a slave, Paul says, he humbled himself to carry a cross, and then he submitted himself to be nailed to it. And having been nailed to that cross, Jesus Christ gave his life for you. He acted as your substitute. The punishment for our sins that our sins had earned and deserved, Jesus took it upon himself so that he might give his life for yours. And now Paul says that because Jesus poured himself out, emptied himself out, that he did not take advantage of his glorious position, but he gave it up for our sake, that now we sinners can have life in his name 
through his death and through his resurrection. That's what Jesus has done for us. And so, listen, if, if, you're, if you're a Christian, you are only a Christian because of this, because of the humility of Jesus. By definition, Jesus had no reason to be humble. There was nothing deficient in him that he ought to be humble and lowly. He didn't need to be, but he chose it. He chose humility. He chose, rather than seeking his own glory, which he had every right to do, he chose to seek out you instead so that we sinners might become God's children by grace through faith. And what we just read in in Philippians 2, you notice what Paul says. We are not just beneficiaries of this grace. We are now partakers of it, yes, but we're also called to imitate it. Remember how Paul starts that text. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. And then he says, have the same attitude in you which was also in him. That we're called to take on as Christians the same attitude, the same humility, the same grace toward the world, even toward our enemies, that Jesus Christ had toward us. That's why we say to be a Christian is to reject a life of self-advancement. You cannot live as a Christian always seeking to manipulate people and circumstances into your favor. It doesn't work that way because that's not how we became Christians. That's not what Jesus did. He poured himself out for the sake of others. And now he calls us to do the same. So why should we be truthful? Why should we be honest and trustworthy? Not just because lying is wrong. We all know it's wrong. That's not enough to stop us from doing it. It's because we've been given a grace that now allows us to be a people of pure, holy speech that we speak in such a way as not just being truthful because I want my own reputation to stay intact, but I want to be truthful because truth is what blesses you. Truth is what makes your life better for having known me. It's an act of grace. Why should we turn the other cheek and, and live with active grace when the world does us wrong? Because Jesus has made us free from entitlement. I don't deserve better. I'm not entitled to a certain way of treatment. What I deserve is not what I've received in Christ. I've received what I didn't deserve. I received grace in life. And so I'm free from a need for vengeance. Vengeance is God's. He will repay. I can leave it up to him. What do I do instead? I show the world something that the world can't comprehend, the very character of Christ, to be light in the dark. So do we see why Paul says one of the chief qualities of love, love does not seek its own. Love does not seek its own. Love does not manipulate. Love does not coerce. Love does not lie. Love does not break promises. Love does not seek vengeance and to balance the scales because love's primary concern is to pour itself out, to empty itself for the good of others. That's what Jesus has done. That's the only reason you and I are here right now. We are products. We are trophies of grace. That's the only right I have to stand where I'm standing right now. I have not earned this. It is Christ. It's the life he gave that I might have his life in place of my sin. And that, is, that, that free gift is offered to all of us. It's free. Simply if we respond in faith to Jesus Christ who poured himself out for you. And so this is what Jesus has done And now this is what he calls us into. It's not enough merely to thank him for his humility, but we need to beg him for his humility, that it might become the operating principle of our heart. The world won't know what to do with us. 
because it doesn't make any sense apart from the regenerating work of God to change us. So let's ask for it, because we sure need it. Father, would you grant us this morning, oh, would you grant us, Lord, hearts? First of all, I pray that you'd grant us hearts to even believe this. It's, it's hard to believe that we could actually live this way and end up somehow on top. You promised that we would, Lord, not the, not the, not the kind of on top that we understand it to be in our, in our natural understanding. But, Lord, that we'd understand it from your perspective. You said if anyone wants to be great, he must become servant of all. He must become least. And, Lord, where that doesn't make sense to us, I, I pray this morning for faith, faith to receive it. Faith to trust, Lord, not just that it's true somehow in, in maybe an abstract way, but it's true because we know it's true because Jesus did it. This is what Jesus did that he made himself least, he made himself servant of all. And because of his humility, we've now been made righteous. We've now been granted eternal life. And so, Father, I, I pray that, that deep in our hearts today that we would trust. We know this is true, and we know it works. Even if it's difficult, even if it's hurtful, we know it works. Because the fact that Jesus Christ did it before us and that he did it for us, it's the only reason we're even sitting here today. We are the beneficiaries of grace. And so, Lord, make us not just those who enjoy it, but those who pursue it and those who embody it. And for that, Lord, we need your grace and your help. Father, where we, I, I, I trust that right now where we sit... There are some of us in this room that we are still paying off a lie that we've told in the past. We're still paying the consequences out for it. And God, we need, we need forgiveness and mercy, and we need righteousness. We can't go back and undo it, Lord. But would you, would you redirect our hearts, change our hearts, so that we might become people of truth? That that might not be uh, something that we, we have to deal with moving forward, but it's something that we've left behind. I trust that as we sit here in this room right now that there are, there are some of us in this room that we have been done wrong, whether in a major way or a minor way, and it's in, it's in, it seems impossible for us to return a blessing instead. It just feels impossible. And Father, where it feels impossible, I pray that, Lord, you would... There, there, we, there are no easy answers here. This is, we can't just flip this on like a light switch but that, Lord, that you would enter in and remind us of your gospel grace. And in that, Lord, that we would see that it was utterly impossible for sinners to come to a righteous God. It was and it is, unless, God, you yourself intervene, unless you do it for us. And so, Father, what is impossible with us is possible with you. And, Father, help us to turn that corner, to just see it as possible and incline our hearts, Lord to want to, uh, to turn to the good, to turn to the light, and to trust you, Lord, with your justice. Lord, we, we need Jesus Christ to reform us here. And we pray, Lord, that not only would we be willing, but that, Lord, you'd be quick to come to our aid in our weakness here. And we trust that you will in his name. Amen. Amen.